E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Ned Benedict, who recently passed away. Ned was interviewed in episode 21 of this program, and he was a friend to many in the wine business. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jeff Kellogg returns to the show. He is now a distributor at Kellogg Selections in North Carolina. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Levy. Great to be back. And uh, also, you probably don't hear this enough. I want to compliment you on what you do for this podcast, because honestly, as somebody who loves wine and wants to learn more about producers and regions, just the people you have on and getting a collection of their stories and their family history is amazing and will be for a long time. That's interesting, because you used to be super sarcastic, but now you're kind of a kiss-up. Is that the transformation that I've seen? It's still very sarcastic, so it's a great combination of both, kind of optimistic and nice with a sarcastic edge, which goes over extremely well in North Carolina. I remember that you worked in North Carolina before. You uh, opened a few restaurants there, right? I did. I worked for a restaurant group. I was in North Carolina for about seven years, opened five concepts for a restaurant group while I was there before I went to the Green Bar in West Virginia and then spent time in California and, of course, New York as well. So, I mean, for me, honestly, it was kind of like going home. Even though I grew up in Ohio, it very much felt like going back home, and that was part of the attraction to go there. And that's where you met your wife, too, in North Carolina, right? Exactly right. So now you're in distribution in the market. You used to be a buyer, but several years later, and what's that like for you? Honestly, it was a huge change. I hadn't necessarily prepared myself for a life of selling wine or distribution. I'd always assumed, I've always loved working in restaurants, honestly, and I thought I would kind of be in them for life. I still think that there's a really good chance that I'll be involved in restaurants again. But going back, you know, one of the reasons I went back and Stephanie as well is because all of these wines that we fell in love with and loved working with and mostly loved to drink that were available in San Francisco and New York weren't in North Carolina. And so being able to go back and introduce those wines, make North Carolina hopefully a little bit better place to be a consumer, be a wine buyer, is one of the major reasons we did it. So how has Charlotte changed in the time since you've been away? It's changed a lot. I mean, all of North Carolina has, but I think Charlotte uh, in general. So again, another reason that we went back to North Carolina is because we feel like it's about to blow up. Hopefully, it's kind of hitting it at the period like maybe Charleston was 10 years ago when there's a lot of things going on, a lot of chefs moving there, a lot of restaurants and retail shops that are trying to do some really cool, exciting stuff. Wanting more access to wines and we're there to give it to them. So in terms of Charlotte, how it's changed, it's still a cab town, as it always has been. It's a big banking hub, so it probably will be for a while. But the number of wine programs that are doing some really cool, exciting stuff has grown exponentially. In Charlotte specifically, there's this great group of, I would say, buyers that are younger than me, 25 to 30, that are restaurant managers and doing buying for their restaurants that are really trying to do cool stuff within the parameters of what their restaurant owners let them do in Charlotte. But specifically, there's a few retailers that are really doing exciting stuff. You know, you never know where the hub of something cool in wine is going to be. In North Carolina, right now, it's Durham, and it probably has been for a number of years. And I don't know if that's what you would have guessed, knowing North Carolina, that like, 
Durham, you know, like 30 minutes outside of Raleigh is going to be the hub for the most exciting stuff. But there's some people doing some really cool stuff out there. Obviously in Raleigh and Chapel Hill and Asheville as well, there's some really cool stuff going on also. There's kind of like a beacon in each little kind of small town. So you wouldn't expect it, but there's uh, like in Wilmington, there's a couple guys doing really cool stuff. In the Outer Banks, like in Kitty Hawk, there's a store doing great stuff. There's really great retail in Winston. There's a really great retail in Greensboro. So they're kind of all over the place. There's just kind of one in each area that probably gets like the entire like Kermit allocation for the area because they buy all the really cool wines and everybody else is kind of doing standard stuff. So although it's kind of centered in those three areas, the Research Triangle, Charlotte and Asheville, there's also like these really cool guys that you would never find unless you were seeking them out. What are the forces behind that? Honestly, a lot of it has to do with people that move from other markets. Oftentimes it's New York, like Michael Maller is a great wine buyer in Durham, uh, and he had worked at Gramercy Tavern years ago. Uh, Cappy Pete buys the, the wines for the Ashley Christensen restaurants, which are some great restaurants in Raleigh. And she had come from Charleston. Paula DePano's at Farrington House, which is an iconic wine program in North Carolina, and she had worked uh, at 11 Madison Park. So you know, people moving either to North Carolina for the first time or moving back from working in other markets makes a huge difference as well, because then it becomes this little epicenter of, of interest. So you hang out with other wine buyers and show them these wines, and then they email me asking if they can get it, you know, that sort of thing. So you're kind of describing yourself, though, in that. Like, that's kind of you as well, right? Like, you also moving from New York to... Yeah, having had left Charlotte to go to other markets and Part of the problem is right now you kind of have to do that. There's not enough mentorship that you can just stay in Charlotte. You know, and that's a lot of what we want to do in North Carolina. Is, you know, this is kind of grandiose expectations, but if you can do like what Bobby Saki did in, in Boulder and kind of make it a better place to be a sommelier, a better place to be a wine drinker. When I was here for La Palais last year, I was actually training for a marathon and I knew Bobby was here. Of course, Bobby's a great runner. And so I kind of use it as a, man, I'd love to be able to pick Bobby's brain for an hour about, you know, when he left Napa to go move to Boulder and to kind of start this restaurant in a smaller area that wasn't as wine savvy. And honestly, I had a big fear about losing relevance too. And it was great to hear that he had a similar concern when he went there. As he puts it, the average wine buyer sticks around for two years, right? So if you're out of the game for two years, then by the time you come back, it's completely new people who have no idea who you are. And so you're kind of rebuilding your relevance and your reputation in a lot of ways. So I got him to do an 18-mile run because that's the amount of miles I had to do. So literally just pounded him with questions about like, so, you know, what did you do about maintaining relevance? And he had some great, very humble stories about what he did. Like, so what do you do when you were trying to introduce these wines? And people were just like, ah, oh, that's a little too weird for me. And he had some great stories about, you know, the pushback, but still just every day keep, it doesn't matter if the guest last night didn't like it and you had to drink it with family meal, like, you know, it's a great wine. If you think the guest is going to like it, like still serve it, still be proud of it. Don't give up. So I took a lot out of that two and a half hour run. I was supposed to run like an 830 pace or something. And because Bobby is a maniac, I ended up going like an eight minute pace and that just wiped me out. So lesson learned, if you're going to run with Bobby, Make him go your pace. Don't try to keep up with him. Were there specific stories that he told you that you thought were really relevant to you? So the most humbling story that he told me was the original site that they had for Frasca fell through. And I think maybe an investor fell through at the same time. And so he had to take a job that he hated. And so people would come in and they would see him and recognize him from when he was working at the laundry. And, and uh, they didn't know that he was working on a restaurant because it was, this is two years later. So they didn't realize that what he was doing long term was obviously what's turned into this amazing restaurant. So they would just look at him like, man, what happened to you? You were the wine director at the French Laundry. And now you're working, doing this job. Uh, and so to be able to kind of maintain your pride when people are looking at you like that is difficult. And, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely days where like, I'm supposed to have a meeting with a wine buyer or something and, and uh, they completely blow me off or thing. And I'm just like... Man, if I was on the floor tonight at Mylino, I'd be probably opening 78 Jacosa or some Quinterno. And instead, I'm getting blown off by this guy who's never even heard of Quinterno. 
Anyway, so that was super helpful to me in kind of maintaining your humility and like, who cares? At the end of the day, you know, you believe in what you're doing, you know, you're doing the right thing and stick with it. Because you'd done wine production before. In other words, you'd done a few harvests and some different places and then you'd been a buyer, but you'd never really been on distribution sales side, right? No, not at all. I honestly had never really been something that I was interested in. And it turns out with good reason, I'm actually really bad at it in a lot of ways. Sometimes I get into, I stay in wine buyer mode where I feel like my opinion matters about vintages or producers and stuff that aren't mine. So especially when I first started, like just these rookie mistakes, like this great wine shop in Raleigh, one of the first times I went up there, I was showing them some red wines. I'm like, I'm going to be the sales guy whose red wines are always at the perfect temperature. I'm going to nail this. They're going to be awed by how like the whites aren't all the same temperature because like one should be just a little bit warmer than the other. And, you know, this red should be 58 and this one should be 62. So I've got like, you know, ice packs and stuff on the wines and it's like a three hour drive to get there. And I think I had this nailed, right? So I get there. It's my first tasting with them. The wine shop's great, great selection. So I really want to get in with these guys. And, you know, also I needed some cash flow. Steph and I just invested our life savings into this company. So it'd be nice to have some people buy some wine also. So you know, pour some whites. And the whites are a little bit too cold. Good temperature, though. But, you know, could be better. Didn't nail it. And then the reds are just way too cold. So I'm showing, like, California Pinot Noir. And it's, like, 55 degrees or something. They're li- they have their hands cusped on the glasses trying to warm it up and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I was just, just wanted to make sure it wasn't too warm. These, sh- these wines show really great. They have a little chill to them. Just like... And they're like, no, no, it's cool. Like, it's easier to warm it up than cool it down. Like being just super nice to me. But they have to be thinking like, wow, and this guy did this for a living, huh? He used to like sell wines at a restaurant and serve them at a temperature. Like, I'm terrible at this. It's unbelievable, like how unprofessional. And like, so I, I hadn't put much thought towards becoming uh, a distributor. But um, I mean, a couple of things that made me do it. One we wanted to go back to North Carolina. We weren't necessarily in a hurry. When we decided it was time to leave California, our first instinct was actually to come back to New York. But we had talked about doing this, and this was kind of the easiest segue into North Carolina. And then also, to be honest with you, because this is how we make a living, it had to be something that was profitable. So we thought that the opportunity to go to North Carolina was right now. We started talking to our friends that are producers in California and asking them about North Carolina and why they weren't in North Carolina or what the deal was with North Carolina. And a lot of the guys that we talked to said something similar, which is, yeah, you know what? We're not in North Carolina. It hasn't been on our radar, but I've had like five people reach out to me from North Carolina in the past year. So clearly it's growing. It's just I'm two in the weeds, but yeah, we're going to look at it. So to Steffi and I, that was kind of like this sign that's like, if we don't do it now, then all these producers that we want to represent, and for us to be able to do what we talked about, which is bring all these wines into North Carolina that aren't there, then the chance would be gone because they'd be working with somebody else. And so to us, like, obviously the opportunity had to be there as well. But domestic was never really your thing, and at least in New York, right? No, not at all. I mean, even when I was in California, it wasn't a passion of mine. That's an exaggeration. I love a lot of California producers in Oregon and Washington, but no, obviously my focus was Italy and, you know, Champagne and to a lesser extent, the rest of France, but most of what I bought was Italy. So I did have to kind of learn a lot about California again. I didn't know as much about what was going on about California and especially Oregon as I did and what's going on in Italy and France. So I definitely had to learn a lot quickly about like, who's kind of up and coming, maybe who's making some just good wines now, but probably going to be making some great stuff pretty soon. But you also, you can only represent people that want to be represented by you. You know, I was really self-conscious that, so I'm a guy, uh, I'm not wealthy. You know, there's some people who know me well, but there's, you know, a lot of people we reach out to barely know me. And so why would they want to work with a distributor? Because We've all heard horror stories from our friends that are producers and suppliers about, oh, yeah, like just threw $50,000 down the toilet because so-and-so went out of business and never paid me. Or, you know, they ordered one time and literally never paid. So we're looking for somebody else. We've all heard those horror stories. And so I was always paranoid. Why would they want to work with us? It kind of snowballed. So in the way that we built the portfolio with the California stuff, Stephanie and I would have brunch sometimes when 
this is going to sound like the name droppiest thing ever, but it would be like Jasmine Hirsch and Michael Cruz and uh, Vinny the Great Sommelier from Bartartine and whoever else was in town. And so we started bouncing this idea about North Carolina to them. And so we got a lot of honest feedback from them. Now, keep in mind, so um, Jasmine is very well represented, her wines are, and so it was never a thought that we would represent them, but we do represent Michael's wine, so he obviously thought enough of the idea to allow us to represent them. But they were kind of monumental in introducing us to other people who might be interested. You know, really there was an initial handful. So it was Ludi, which then comes with Presquil. Eric Erlsback was very easy to convince when I told him the idea. He was just like, what can we do? When are we getting started? Send me a PO. And I was like, all right, I have to get permits and stuff first. And Dan Petrosky at Massacan, he signed on pretty immediately, Michael Cruz. So when I was able to go to these guys, like John Raytek at Ceritas, and be able to say, kind of exaggerate what's going on, like, hey, you know, so I'm going to be working with producers such as, and I would name the four that I had signed on, and not necessarily say that it was only those four, to make it sound like I had more going on than I did, then I would at least get a phone call. And as it turns out, I was wrong. They were all very excited to work with somebody like me. What they really want is somebody who's passionate about wine, because apparently that's more rare than maybe you and I would think, uh, and somebody who will represent their wines well. I don't think they had thoughts that I would sell more wine than anybody else that they could possibly work with in North Carolina. I don't think that's why they decided to work with Kellogg Selections. I think that they thought that we would get their wines in the right places, treat their wines the right way, get them in front of the proper people, and probably show them a good time when they visited North Carolina. So what's a number to start a company like that? What kind of finance? Honestly, that number is around 150000 If you want to be able to have good inventory and be able to not sell out of things the second that somebody decides to run with it by the glass, and to be able to have a wide variety of products. So that probably means you need to get some investors together, right? And that's exactly right. So Steph and I were just going to do it on our own, was the initial thought. So we could have started with Grand Cru Selections and just had a small handful of producers and like ordered every week like we were a restaurant, uh, but that's not ideal. And uh, in Charlotte, the importer, Eric Solomon, he's lived there for a long time and he's been a close friend of mine for a good while. And as I told him this idea, he's been a mentor to me for a while and always visited Mylena when, when he would come to New York. And I mean, he thought enough of the idea that he's the one who brought up the idea of investing before we did. And we're like, well, this is going to work out perfect because we're not in love with the other options we have of investments. He knows the business, so we can also lean on him like with questions and he'll be invested financially. So hopefully he would give us the answers he believes in anyways. But if he's financially invested, obviously the answers are even more legit and, and true. And so that was, I mean, huge for us that he was interested it's also nice because we don't carry any of his wines. Of course, not that he doesn't have great wines, but there's a separation of church and state that way. So he can only hit me up about numbers as an investor, not also as my supplier. And, uh, you know, he told me that, you know, if I had done this five years ago, he would have thought it was a, a terrible idea. But he really felt, just like I did, that the timing on this was uh, ideal. Because there is a, an example nearby, which is Charleston in South Carolina. And, you know, it's built out a quite a food and wine scene, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm really hoping that that's what Charlotte can become. I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at like what Harry Root did in Charleston. And, uh, you know, when I saw David McHarris at BevCon, I made sure to introduce myself and kind of hit him up with some questions or any advice. And, you know, honestly, what I said to David McHarris, who has a great distributor there in Charleston as well, was, I said, thank you for doing such a kick-ass job. You're one of the reasons that people are willing to work with me, even though I have no experience in this business. He's doing so well that all those guys that might be more skeptical of me are more willing to work with me because he's doing such a good job. So what are some of the keys to that? I think everybody talks to me about telling their story the right way. So, you know, everybody has a unique story about why they started the winery what their beliefs are in terms of production, you know, winemaking, most importantly, farming, of course. And so what they really want you to do is to tell that story. I had no idea that this was an issue, but I guess what you see is a lot of people not telling the story, you know, they'll buy the wine and then six months later, they haven't sold any. So they give an incentive to the sales team and the sales team just like 
maybe they'll discount it or you know what I mean? I don't think that with all the effort that people like John Raytek or Dan Petrovsky is putting into farming and winemaking, I don't think that's how they want to be represented. And obviously, I would say that Harry Root and David McCarris aren't doing that in Charleston. And so do you have buyers like actively hunting things down or is it a little bit more like you just said, kind of telling the story? I mean, how does it work really on the ground? Yeah, so a little bit of both. I'll have somebody reach out to me and like, are you the one that has Rulo? So yeah, you have a little bit of people reaching out to you, but sorry to keep mentioning Ceratops, but that's actually a great example because the first drop we got, I reached out to people and like there was two or three people that knew the wines and were just like, ship it. But everybody else, I had to be like, sincerely, I think this is one of the top California Chardonnays, if not the top. Please, I'm going to have it open. Can I please come by and taste you? And be like, sure, sure, sure. Uh, and I would taste and, you know, people were kind of blown away. And, and we sold all the ones that we got from Ceratos in that first drop. Second release comes of Ceratos. And it's all, we just sent out, this is what I can give you. And it was, you know, it's gone like that. And unfortunately, we can't take it out and sample and and do that's more fun to do necessarily than just sending out hey here's your allocation i'm sorry that i can't get you 10 cases but this is what we have for you so that evolution of telling the story is happening and it's happening quickly uh now we're telling the story without having to sample it which is a great evolution to see so that's one of the goals that we have is to try to build that trust with the buyers that look man if i tell you that something's killer then if you open a bottle and you don't think it is, like, I'll buy back whatever you don't like. Like, uh, but just trust me, dude, I can't sample it out, but this stuff is smoking. On one hand, you're saying, like, I want all these people to learn. And on the other hand, you're like, trust me, bro. <laughs> right, right. So then it becomes what's more educational for them. And so this kind of goes into Stephanie's idealistic ideas about how we want to make Charlotte a better place to be a wine lover, right? So is it better for us to take out that bottle and to go visit like six, seven, eight people in a day and taste them on it and tell them the story and they buy some or they don't buy some or whatever? Or what if we save that bottle and we do a side-by-side of whatever the topic is? We do a side-by-side of all the Syrahs that we have, some French, some California, some from whatever, like a more educational tasting, right? You still get to taste the wine, you get more people. So it becomes more educational if you do fun stuff like that. So do you see real fundamental differences between the buyers in North Carolina, maybe that breaks down by city, and the buyers in New York or San Francisco? Yeah, the buyers in North Carolina tend to be a little bit more conservative in doing stuff that they believe in. It oftentimes comes from their owners. So, you know, if I bring you a wine that I think is ideal for your restaurant concept, and it's a great by-the-glass price that works with what you're doing. The number of times that I hear things like, oh, man, I love that wine. dude! Thank you so much for bringing that. That's really great. Nobody ever comes in and asks for Vermentino from California. But it was really good. Thanks for bringing it. And you're like, no, 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 I know. So here's a, that's where you come in. You know, and maybe, again, I'm treating buyers as if I'm selling to myself because obviously it's not like dozens of people are coming to Mylino being like, what Pella Verga do you have by the glass? We loved and so we were turning people on to that so i remember you used to kind of butt your head up against that when you worked in that restaurant group before when you were in charlotte earlier in your career because you wanted to do more adventurous stuff and you just didn't feel like the restaurant group was like there with you on that and that was one of the reasons you ended up leaving so do you think that things have changed now that people could get away with more and that the owners just don't see it or what do you see yeah, that's a great point because I do need to keep putting myself back in the shoes of that guy who also had a super conservative list 10 years ago in Charlotte. And I think I've changed more than they have. So I think I've just come to realize that if guests come in, if you have a really good wine that tastes like Pinot Noir and that it's light-bodied, bright fruit, delicious, it doesn't literally have to be Pinot Noir if it's great and great for the price and you're turning people onto something new. Whereas at the time, I thought that you did have to literally have Pinot Noirs by the glass because that's what people ask for. So really, I think it's me that's changed more. I've come to realize that you have to be the one who turns guests onto new things because they're not just going to come in and ask for Pella Verga or Gamay or something. They'll just be like, oh, I'll take a glass of Pinot Noir. And then when the response is so, we don't have a Pinot Noir by the glass, but if you like Pinot Noir, you'll love blank. 
either they don't care and they're just like, yeah, whatever. Or they're excited. So what is this again? This is really good. And then you can engage a conversation, build regulars and do all those great things so that hopefully you can build wine sales at your restaurant by having wine regulars, not just food regulars. So I'm trying to help them see that you can take a couple more risks. Uh, one other problem in North Carolina, to be honest with you, is the big companies buying wine list placements via things like printing costs. So you can't literally pay for placements. You can be like, hey, if you give me half to buy the glass list, you know, we'll give you this check. But they basically do the same thing. So they quote unquote pay for printing. So there's some people who literally do print it for them. And it seems to always be these oversized wine lists that go in these hard to change plastic binders. So it's very difficult for the restaurant to change their list. Or they'll literally just write a check to a fake printing company for placements as if the money is going towards printing, but it's way more than the cost of printing. So honestly, when you visit places where you're like, man, I've been to four restaurants in the city and all the wine lists have like the same by the glass list. That's what's going on. And it must be hard for you then as a break-in startup distributor to kind of get market share in that kind of environment. Yeah. So you just, honestly, you just, you don't bother with those places, which is a shame, but you have to divide your time up and what makes most sense for you. So, and then you just spend all your time with the people, you know, who don't sell out their wine list. Then the problem becomes, so let's say there's 10 really great small portfolios. Then we're all fighting for like the 12 by the glasses at that spot that doesn't deal with the big guys, right? And most of those places do still buy from the big guys. They just don't, you know, sell their placements. So instead of hurting the big companies, you know, by taking a placement, really what you're doing is another small company is losing placement, which isn't ideal. I would, you know, love to partner with the other great small books in North Carolina as much as we can. My guess is a lot of the people you're dealing with are also kind of like restaurant managers. Very much so, yeah. Oftentimes, it's restaurant managers that are passionate about wine. They're doing the restaurant management job because it lets them be a buyer and you get to taste a lot of great wine and things like that. So, yeah, in New York, it is, you know, professionals who do it all the time. My experience in New York is also that people are, take a longer view on it. So our job is really to be as profitable as possible for the restaurant as a wine director, right? I talk as if I'm still a wine director. And so if you build sales and maintain costs, then you're going to make the restaurant more money, right? And so that's something that you can tangibly show at the end of every month. So this is last year's sales. This is this year's. Like, we're making you more money by me buying these cool wines and building a reputation. Where people kind of take a shorter view, oftentimes, restaurant owners can in North Carolina, where it's more about controlling costs. So they look more at the cost percentage necessarily than growing sales, is a way for the beverage program to make more money. And for a lot of restaurant owners that have been around for a while, they don't necessarily believe that this Pinot Noir that you charge $12 a glass for will bring in any more revenue than this Pinot Noir that you charge $12 a glass for. They don't see that if you have a really great wine list, you'll do more covers. And more importantly, you'll do covers to people who love wine, who spend more money on wine and food, because that's what wine lovers do. And so it's much more about controlling costs and so obviously getting a check, just a flat out check for placements is an easy way to just toss money directly to the bottom line. I think we were both around in the late 90s, right? Yeah. During that period of time, there was a lot of restaurateurs who were all about having a big wine list because they wanted to maybe get a wine spectator award, get more of a wine clientele, specifically for the reason that you said, because wine clientele tend to spend more money. Here in New York, a lot of that cycled out. You don't see the big two or three million dollar sellers so much anymore. I feel like some of those guys ended up getting kind of hit in one of the recessions or maybe in some other financial problems. Right. And they just don't want to sink all that cost. But I imagined that in a place like North Carolina, there would still be those dudes kind of squirreling away wines. But is this just not the case? No, I don't want to say across the board that's not the case. I mean, there's places like the Angus Barn that have been putting wines away for a long time and have amazing collections. But what you see in New York is consistent there with the one-page wine list that has 40 to 60 selections is certainly what's going on there. You know, one of the best wine lists in Raleigh is Pool's Diner, which is literally on a chalkboard. And so, you know, that's a very small list, but that can be very fun and very exciting too. But another difference in North Carolina from New York is that you can't buy from private collections. 
So in terms of vintage depth, you have to have purchased this years ago, overpurchased, sat on it. And so, you know, that investment is very, very, very rare. Whereas in New York, if you want to build verticals, you can do that overnight from via private collections. In a micro sense, it is better for us that you can't buy from private collections because you have to buy from distributors. At the same time, I'd much rather have a state with great wine lists that becomes a wine destination and hopefully you get more people drinking wine in general. What's the pushback against having a big list? First of all, most importantly, it's the monetary investment. I mean, putting a million dollars into a wine inventory. You mentioned that to a restaurant tour, and they just look at you like you're crazy. But, you know, while I was gone from North Carolina for those eight, 10 years, it really became a beer state. You know, when I left, I feel as if it was just becoming a thing where you had craft beers and not just the domestic selections. In a lot of areas, it was almost like, why are you paying $6 for a beer, man? Like, Bud Light's $3. You're like, you're an idiot. Now when I come back, there's many, many beer lists that are strictly craft beers and strictly local because so many local breweries have opened up. And what the beer community has done a really great job of that the wine community hasn't done as well with is making education cool. So not only are they drinking, you know, double imperial, triple hopped IPAs, but they're also talking about IBUs and the type of hops used and where the hops came from and where the brewer's background is. And when I hear people ordering wine in North Carolina, and again, there's always exceptions to this. There's a number of great wine buyers that are doing this. The wine community hasn't done a great job of making it cool to talk about where this wine comes from, what the grape is necessarily, unless it's one of the ones they're familiar with, what the farming is, what the production technique is, that if you start talking about that, there's not a lot of interest, even when I am straight to consumers and in-source. They're not that interested in it. And so somehow beer has done a much better job with that than us in the wine community. What do you think could change that? More relaxed, great places to drink wine. You know, when I think of the wine bars... In North Carolina, a lot of them are super datey kind of places. So, like, it's great to take a date there. It's like mood lighting, and it, there's like velvet chairs to sit in, and it's cushy and comfortable. But it's not the kind of place that, like, you, myself, and like two other buddies would want to go. You know what I mean? Because it's very much set up like a date place. Uh, so, and then there's a bunch of breweries where you can drink beer and talk to people who help brew it. And they're all designed so that people can hang out. And it's kind of replaced bars in a sense. You talk to bar owners, at least in Charlotte. I don't know if it's true of the other places. but So it's tough for them to compete because, one, they have to charge more for the beer because there's a middle tier that takes a markup on the beer as well. And the breweries did a really great job of making the places comfortable and fun to drink at, which bars aren't always. The breweries are very fun. And they're low-key and they're not pretentious. And even if you don't want to hear about IBUs, like you still go there and have a couple beers. And there's not really venues for that in North Carolina where you can learn about what the wine is and try something new and not feel like talked down to. A lot of it is us working the floor. There's not a ton of people strictly working the floor selling wine in North Carolina, which would make a giant difference. Like remember, like even 10 years ago, and the company I worked for in New York, USHG, you remember Danny used to say things like, he took pride in the fact that Union Square Cafe didn't have sommeliers. The age of the sommelier is dead, right? And then fast forward to when I left, and every restaurant in the company had four, five, six sommeliers on staff. And so obviously he saw what a difference that makes in terms of service and guest enjoyment and obviously profitability. And that just obviously hasn't happened yet in North Carolina outside of a, a small group. But what I saw with Danny was really that to me, it seems like when you look at the restaurants, the type of people that would have made a really great, motivated assistant GM or GM type person, say 15, 20 years ago, today those people are really interested in wine. That same sort of motivated, wants the team to do well, pitch in all around, willing to put in the time, the sweat, the hours. Right. That type of person typically is on the wine track these days as opposed to the management track. And it seems like as management layers have decreased, sommelier layers have increased, if I'm reading it correctly. I would agree with that. I think financially it makes a big impact, but also in terms of level of service it does. And if you were to, let's say, do an open call and you were hiring for managers, 
captains and sommeliers. You know, the fifth best sommelier applicant would be the top person in the other two categories. And so you're absolutely right. If, if you can take advantage of that market where there's a lot of talented people who are super interested in wine and also really good at service, and then kind of replace the other positions with those people because that's where the talent is, then, I mean, that's pretty obvious. When it comes to the wine lists that are there, what's the breakdown? We've talked a lot about domestic, but are people interested in wines from other countries? or? Yeah, very much so. And it doesn't have to be what you and I would think of as the other countries. So if you and I were putting together a wine list, we might go straight to France and Italy. South America is much bigger there than in other markets, but Spain is amazingly popular, especially in Charlotte. So I talked about Eric Solomon earlier. He lives in Charlotte and has obviously done a great job of making an impact where, you know, a list in New York that has like France, Italy, California, and Spain would probably be, Spain would have the least skews out of those four probably in New York and probably by far. Uh, Whereas in Charlotte, you look at that list and Italy probably has the least skews and Spain probably has more than France. So it's more Spanish driven than it is France or Italy, which is super unique to me. I didn't remember that from when I was there before, but it kind of makes sense. Because that's got to be a little bit challenging for you because your real strength was Italian wine, at least when you were in New York. Yeah, but so we choose to look at it instead that it's an area of opportunity. So we literally have zero Spanish wines in our book because we don't really feel as if we can add anything to that conversation that's not already covered in North Carolina. Whereas Italy, we feel like there's huge opportunity to add to that conversation and show people wines that they've never had before and producers they're not familiar with. And so for us, it it looks like a huge opportunity for growth, which is kind of the way that we looked at everything. We've been trying to hit it where they ain't, you know, like, so there's plenty of Napa Cabernets represented in North Carolina. So that's a very small portion of our book. Only when we found somebody like, like Enfield, did we add Cabernet to our portfolio because we felt like we could add something to the conversation at that point. And that's the way we've looked at everything. How else do you see the portfolio fitting together? Like what are moves that you would like to make it maybe down the road? Uh, that's a great question because I'm really playing it by ear. You know, you can really only take what's available. And while I'd love to have like, you know, Conterno <laughs> and Mascarello in my book, you know, those wines are already well represented. And so you can only take, you know, what's available. And so for us, it's just keeping that level of integrity that we have right now. But we're not specifically looking for regions or areas because the number of times where I heard the team that sells for us, there's like, I really have a lot of requests for like a Merlot by the glass. You know, like if I could find a California Merlot at a by the glass price point that I thought had integrity, I will bring it in in a heartbeat. But I have not come across that. And we're not going to just start like checking boxes because it's things that people order like California Sauvignon Blanc that we would sell for under 10. If I found one that I was proud of, I'd love to jump on that. But it's just not an area where we've been able to find something we believe in. So not to be a Debbie Downer, but it sounds to me like the model is these things are really cool in New York. I think a lot of people in North Carolina don't know about them. I'm going to carry them in North Carolina and introduce them to people. It'll be important for the community. But what if the things that are popular in New York never become popular in North Carolina? I mean, what are you going to do? Well, what a, man, I hadn't thought about that. If it doesn't work, then I'm kind of screwed. Maybe people have a regional taste is what I'm saying. Right. You know, one of the interesting things I learned about selling wine is what doesn't work is if you tell them that, oh, yeah, so here's this wine. And like, you know, if you look at the list at 11 Madison Park and, you know, the modern, this wine is on all of those lists. Like, it's just hot. You should really buy this. Like, that does not work whatsoever. That's that, you know, I really don't care what people in the big city do. Like, I form my own opinions. I've been buying wine for 10 years. Like, like that, that has the opposite effect. So we've definitely made an effort to not push it as a like, this is what the New Yorkers are doing. And, you know, that's a dining scene that's ahead of you guys. So you should be doing it as well. And there's definitely, you know, there's a lot of wines that are very well thought of in the New York Samoyed community that have not gone over well in North Carolina so far. And then it's just like every other one, like the people who get it and like it will buy it and everybody else won't. And, you know, that's about all you can do. But I mean, if the wines in general don't go over well, then uh, I don't know. I guess everybody has to face that point where when you open a restaurant and uh, you don't want to, you know, change the level of 
what you're doing with the food and service. And if people aren't getting it, you can either go out of business or you can make wholesale changes. You know, Stephanie and I had a lot of conversations about we were going to carry ones that we believed in. You know, if it doesn't work, then, you know, unfortunately, we're just going to have to pack up and, and have it not work. The reception thus far, I think, has shown that that's not going to be the case, though. Is there a little bit of that, like, Yankees don't tell us what to do down here in the South? Definitely. 100%, yeah. When I present things that, even if I say, I ran with this by the glass at Mylino for the entire time I was there, that's how much I believe in this wine, it still goes over, like, it makes it more difficult to sell that wine. They have to really be blown away if I set the wine up like that. Even if the person is not from North Carolina, there's still a lot of, I don't care what they do in New York. So I guess then looking at something like Charleston could be helpful for you to say like, oh, well, it can work down here. And that's a great analogy. Yeah, the relationship to Charleston is a lot more, they're more comfortable with that. They'll say like, oh, like who else is buying this? And I'll be like, oh, you know, so-and-so bought it. You know, they came from Charleston, so they already knew the wine. And so I, before I could even bring it to them to taste, they bought it. And that's, people have like a really, oh, really? They were working with in Charleston? Like, oh, that's cool. And they're much more into it than if, I bring up the New York thing. So what's a natural wine scene like? Not as much as I think in other markets. There's a handful of people that they don't have an opinion on orange wines yet, and they don't necessarily have an opinion on natural wines, but they read about it and they know it's a thing, and so they want to try it. I haven't really come across people that are like dogmatically in favor of it, uh, and I don't come across that many people that are dogmatically like, no, I don't like natural wines. And same thing with orange wines. So the place where the education is and the interest in the wine buyers is that they're very much trying those things on and so they're interested in trying it but i don't know of any places that are selling a lot of natural wines because the wine buyer at that place is very much into it so who is an average wine buyer is that person in their 20s is that person in their 40s well probably in between so there's been huge growth in north carolina recently especially in charlotte i don't know the literal numbers but the city has grown exponentially over the past 10, 15 years, that city then becomes younger. It's a very millennial wine buyer. So they're drinking things that their parents didn't. Their parents definitely drank Cabernet. And so let's all assume that Cabernet is going to become less important in that area because that's just the natural evolution of things. But oftentimes, that I don't drink Cabernet goes to Malbec. It doesn't necessarily go towards, I don't drink Cabernet, let's have some Gamay. You know what I'm saying? So you mentioned that a lot of the people who are the most interested in your book are people who have worked in other markets and then come back or move to North Carolina for the first time. The flip side of that would be, do you ever worry that you're going to turn somebody on to all these cool wines and then they're going to move to New York? Do you ever worry that the person you train is going to do like what you did? Yes. I wouldn't say that it's a worry of mine, but to be honest with you, there's some buyers that I work with that should go to New York and spend at least a few years getting the chance to work in the best wine market in the country and learning a lot, being able to taste those wines and getting more experience because they just won't be able to do it where they are. So I don't really worry about it. It would obviously like, it means you have to train a brand new person and that person who replaces them may not even be interested in being open to us. So it could be bad for business, but to be honest with you, if I can help that person grow, like I'd much rather do that. But we've known each other for a few years now, and I think one of the things that really surprised me about you was that you were able to build a team and kind of empower them. Because you're a smart guy, you're clever, you're a good salesman, but that dude isn't always a good team builder, that guy. But you really uh, impressed upon me that you were when you worked at Mylino and you brought in a young staff. I thought you really picked well, and then you gave them some rope, and they seemed to like you a lot, which surprised the hell out of me. <laughs> Now that you're on the distribution side, what are you doing when you're hiring? You know, we've been very, and thank you for saying that, we've been very fortunate with the talent that we've been able to get. So there's not that many, if you're a wine nerd who wants to sell wine in North Carolina, there's not a ton of jobs for you. A lot of the wine salespeople are salespeople who could be selling books, they could be selling vacuum cleaners, they just happen to have gotten a job selling wine. And so, you know, they learn about it, but it's not a passion. So kind of the wine nerds kind of gravitated to us. And so we've been extremely fortunate with the talent that we've been able to work with. So m maybe people like working with me. I'm not sure. I think it has more to do with the portfolio. But 
it, you know, it was really, I appreciate you saying it because it was one of the things that surprised me about my tenure at Myelino was I didn't necessarily think of myself as somebody who enjoyed mentoring other people. I was working so hard to kind of get myself to where I need, wanted to be that I didn't necessarily think of myself as somebody who was good at mentoring others. But, you know, there's a big responsibility when those people are like, yes, I could work at a number of places, but I want to come work for you. I want to be a wine director and I want you to help get me there. You know, when you're giving that job offer, I felt a huge responsibility that, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can to help you get where you want to be. And, you know, a lot of that is empowering people to be in charge of something. So unfortunately, you have to make mistakes to learn sometimes, and it's the best way to learn. So you can't make mistakes if you're not in charge of something and get to make decisions. So I try to do the same thing with the sales team. That's one reason I think that we're going to be able to retain people is when somebody comes to me and says like, hey, could we drop this price a little bit? This person says they could do it, you know, by the glass if we did this price. And well, what's the price that they would buy it at, right? <laughs> because we're not going to make much money on this, but, you know, I want you to get the placement. We'll have a back and forth and I'll say, okay, so here's the thing. This is the lowest we can possibly go. Obviously, you get more commission if you sell it for more. So I'm going to let you make the decision. You talk to the buyer, you work with them, you read it. This is on you. Make the decision, be an adult, and I'm going to let you run your business as, as you want to. And for the most part, people really enjoy that. Not everybody. I think people are more engaged and enjoy their job more if they have ownership and they feel like they're kind of running their own small business within your business. And you can retain people. And back to Mylino, that's what we were able to do was put people in charge of, hey, you get to run the buy the glass program right now. You're in charge of ordering. You're in charge of this. And really give them responsibility that you can have monthly meetings with and say, well, this is what you're doing well, this is what you're not. And give them a chance to show off so they can hopefully grow as well. A little bit of that is situational in terms of you're working within the laws of North Carolina, which you know you wouldn't be able to change prices just as you wanted to in New York. So are there other examples of that? Are there other unique or different kinds of laws in North Carolina that you're like, oh, I wonder if we could do this as a result of that? Well, one of the most interesting laws is you can't base any price on volume. So I could say if you were a buyer, I could say to you, I'll charge you 10 for this and I can charge everybody else in the world 12. And that's totally legal. I just can't say if you buy this many cases of it, then I can give you 10. And of course, the other really tricky law is that liquor is completely separate from wine. So liquor is only sold through state-run ABC stores, uh, for better or worse. Probably better for us because, let's be honest, liquor is where the money is, so it keeps those deep pockets away from buying more placements than it's already done. So when I look at people who are about 10 or 15 years older than you and I, because we're about the same age, I think a lot of them worked as sommeliers and then went to work for a domestic winery as like an in-house sommelier or national sales rep or regional sales rep. And my question always for someone like yourself and myself who worked often with European wines was what were we going to do when we left the floor? Because we probably weren't going to go work for a California winery and be their national sales rep. Right. So is this the answer then? Is the answer that they're going to segue into distribution and have small portfolios? I think it's definitely one of the ways in which you, because I've always wondered that same thing. I think both of us have seen guys that we thought were really good sommeliers that then worked for somebody and you're just, what? I know that that guy doesn't like that wine. That's so interesting. And so that was something that I never thought that I could personally do. And so I guess it is one of the ways in which you can avoid having to do that, right? So it's kind of like being a wine buyer in that you only have to work with wines that you're passionate about. You know, I think it's one of the many ways that sommeliers are finding that they can own their own business and kind of control their own destiny. Well, you're a guy who is really good at convincing and working with guests. I've seen it in action, so I know it's true. Now you're sort of one step removed from that, right? Like you're working with someone else to get through to a guest. And so is that a big change for you? Because I feel like one of your strong suits was dealing directly with guests. It's honestly, it's really hard for me. Like I'll be in a restaurant and I'll like want to jump in and like answer the question like for the bartender. It's also difficult for me to get across. Again, you know, I mentioned earlier that like I know that nobody's coming in asking for this specific type of wine. But that's what you do. You turn them on and you get them excited about it. So 
I would say that there's a really good chance that I'll be involved in restaurants again, just because that passion to want to take care of guests and show them a great time and turn them on to wines is, is not going away. Like I kind of thought it might. I very much miss restaurants. So yeah, it's very hard to not be able to talk to guests. And it's even more difficult to deal with buyers that I feel like aren't as passionate about dealing with guests as I was. Distribution, it's all about the inventory, right? Like controlling that inventory, controlling that cost. Yeah, that's very hard because we didn't know what would take off and what wouldn't. And so I was very conservative when you first order. Rhyme makes a skin fermented vermentino, the his vermentino, which is great. But I was super conservative when I ordered because I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. So, I mean, literally, I think I might have ordered like two or three cases to start with, right? Just to see what happens. And our sales guy in Raleigh basically took out one bottle and then sold us out of that. And I had to order more like on the fly. And, you know, shipping from California, it takes a little bit more time. So then you're 86 for a while. So there was a lot of lessons learned about how to do inventory. But, you know, we're also not in a place where we can take big risks, you know, and bring in pallets of stuff that's kind of a risk. So it's kind of obnoxious that we're making small orders from like Grand Cru Selections, the importer out of New York, two times a month instead of just like once every three months, just bringing in a ton of wine. But it's the realities of where we are. And, you know, as we kind of learn lessons and run out of wine and have to apologize to people. And um, luckily, my wife did logistics for wine importers, both in New York and California. So, I mean, her experience, man, if I had to deal with shippers and customs and truck companies, and thank God she's so good at it, because we would probably go out of business uh, if I had to handle all that myself. And working with somebody like Grand Cru, they have a much bigger portfolio than you bring in. So how does that discussion go? Like, how do you pick and choose? Uh, Ned Benedict sends you an email with the subject just saying like the name of a producer. And then the, the email says, you don't want any? And he's basically saying, hey, I want you to pick up some of this wine that you haven't yet. And that's been a really interesting relationship with Grand Cru. So I always, I loved the wines they bring in. I bought a lot of wines when I was a wine buyer in New York um, and really wanted to work with them because they weren't in North Carolina yet. And I just could not get them to give me an answer on whether I could carry their wines or not. So one of the partners, Ned Benedict, who's roughly 300 years old and kind of curmudgeon and hilarious, I kept bugging him like, hey, can, I, can we talk about this? Can we talk about this thing? Just kept putting me off, putting me off. Their national sales guy, he wanted to be in more states, and so he was kind of pushing. So he was a huge ally for me. I just couldn't get an answer. Just yes or no. Just zero answer, right? So you have to meet with this guy. Talk to that guy. Talk to that guy. Nobody will give an answer. They just like talk to me and just like, yeah, I don't know why Ned wanted us to talk. And so I was, I was in town in New York for something else. I was living in California at the time. Jay Latham, the national sales guy, just tells me just so they're having a, a meeting with a lot of their producers who happen to be in town at the same time just go. Like they're having a couple other distributors from other states there, just go to the office at this time. So I'm like, all right, cool. So literally I just go to the office, right? There's been no agreement. Ned knows I want to do it. Ned knows what I'm doing, but he refuses to answer. I go, I taste with the producers. I like take notes, asking a bunch of great questions. And then uh, I leave. I just send uh, a PO of what like I'm planning on picking up and like my first initial order to Ned. And uh, he, he literally has still never said yes or no. They sent me the wine that I ordered. I've paid for it. I'm selling their wines. Jay Latham's come to visit North Carolina. But I've yet to receive a yes from him that I can carry Grand Cru in North Carolina. With Ned, I get, just fake it until you make it or something like that. Were there other kind of like remarkable stories like that in the... I was talking to the national sales guy totally. I didn't even realize he was national sales for transatlantic bubbles. I was having a conversation with him about something else and telling him what I was doing. And he said, Hey, do you want to sell our champagnes? And I was like, I had no idea that that's what you did. Like, are you kidding? I love those wines. I would love to. That's literally how it happened, like out of the blue. Talking to producers was really interesting because it's not something that I've done before, but I really wanted Ceratos. I think those wines are brilliant. So Stephanie and I are driving cross country. We're driving through the mountains in Utah. We took a weird route because we're visiting friends, in this case, Denver. So the time that we had scheduled to talk to him, I call him, we're talking, starts going in and out. And I lose the call, right? So I'm like, oh, this is terrible. So 
I keep checking my phone for bars, or I'm driving, so Stephanie is. And when we get bars, we just get off the highway. We pull into the park. It's like a subway somewhere in Utah, right? We have bars. So I call him back. He's like, oh, you know, I lost you. you just, I, I know you said you were in the mountains. So he knows we're driving cross country, right? And so I'm like, yeah, we pulled off the highway. We're in a subway parking lot because we got some bars and, you know, thought we'd finish up this conversation. No exaggeration. We talked for another hour and a half. So we're sitting in a parking lot in the middle of a cross-country trip that we delayed for an hour and a half because I really wanted Ceratops. So literally, there's a point at which I hit mute on the phone and I said to Stephanie, I, I know, I know. I don't care how long this takes. I really want Ceratops. And she's like, yeah, it's fine. I'm, I'm going to go get a drink, though. <laughs> so I finished up the conversation with John. It all works out well because you know, we're selling their wines and we have a great relationship. And we were just an hour and a half late getting to our next destination, which is totally fine with me. What about the business side? You know, one of the areas that I realized is you can get a lot of mentorship when you're a sommelier or a wine director and how to be better at doing that. And, you know, the wine community is amazing in that regard and teaching you about wines and taking you on trips. But when you start your own business, there's not, there's not that many people that can help you with those avenues. I mean, again, I'll name drop. Rajat Parr has been great in giving me advice about career moves to make. And his whole thing was just whatever you do next, stop working for other people. You have to start your company. You'll be poor, you'll be in debt, you'll be stressed out like crazy, but you'll feel so much more fulfilled. You'll be happier. You'll love it. And I know you'll be great at it. I took that recommendation to heart, but there's not like when you're reaching out for people, if you don't have investors that really know business, like even things like, so do I want to be an LLC? Are we an S corp? You know, who should we get to hand? I don't know how to do accounting. I don't know what I can write off and how to do that. And, and there's not a ton, and you get different answers from everybody. So, you know, I would love someday to be able to help people learn how to start their own small business within this, you know, restaurant wine world, because man, is there a huge hole for that uh, right now? You know, I, in terms of the business side of that aspect of what I've learned, like, man, thank God for Stephanie. That's what I learned. Like, I already knew that I was a really lucky guy, but. Now I'm like incredibly lucky. So basically the move to start your own distribution is marry someone who has expertise in global shipping. That's extremely helpful. Yeah, yeah. I imagine a lot of people are going to end up doing what you're doing, which is they're going to segue off the floor and do something in distribution. There are so many young sommeliers now, and that didn't used to be the case. Everyone used to be older. It was like their second or third career to be a sommelier. Right, But now there's all these people and they're not going to do it for 40 years. They're going to do something else. Maybe sooner than they think. So my thing is what's going to happen with all those people? Are they going to go and have a second career? Or are they going to go back to med school? Or, or are they going to do something in wine? And I think that's really what's going to determine where the wine culture in the States goes is what happens to all those people. Right. You and I have seen the number of avenues that you can go. You can make wine for yourself. You can start a podcast. What I'm really hoping is those people, because you're right, there's so many more young sommeliers and they're not going to be on the floor when they're 50. And so what are they going to do? I'm really hoping that they open restaurants because, you know, all the restaurants that open, of course, it tends to be driven by who the chef is and chefs have an easier time getting investors and getting money. And so sometimes the wine programs lack because not every chef cares about wine and not every chef understands the profits that a wine program can bring to their restaurant. But the more sommeliers that you have opened up restaurants, obviously the food still has to be great. So they have to have a chef partner or just hire great chefs. But I'm really hoping that to make the world a better place to drink wine in restaurants, that a lot of these sommeliers start opening their own restaurants, which maybe it'd be great if those New York Psalms come down to North Carolina and open wine-focused restaurants. People moving from other markets is a giant help. I think it would only help the North Carolina wine scene and get more diversity in terms of the wine list. Jeff Kellogg thinks that people moving from one place to another can have a huge impact in the wine scene of those different places, and that's advice that he has followed himself. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. Good to see you. Jeff Kellogg of Kellogg Selections in North Carolina. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, 
alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. When you do business with people, you re- like you think you know the producers because you visited them and you've worked with their wines and they've dined in your restaurant. I've learned more about the producers and who they really are and how the business really works, you know, and who actually looks at their wine as something they put their heart and soul into and who thinks of it as, you know, they could be selling apples and it would they would probably treat it the same way in terms of who they have sell it and what their philosophy is on when they ship and those sorts of things. So I've learned more about, you know, certain producers' integrity.